HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by Cider Week New York City, happening November 6th through 15th, 2015. For more information, check out ciderweeknyc.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today on the release day of Slow Fires, a wonderful cookbook by Justin Smiley, all about braising, roasting, grilling. I mean, everything that has to do uh, about applying heat and, you know, feeling like a man. <laughs> um, first of all, Smiley, that's how you pronounce it. Yes. Because people look at that last name and I think they're a little wary of, uh, you know, Maybe it has some kind of tilt to it. Who knows? But you're a man of both coasts, born in California, now in New Jersey. Um, but it was your formative time in New York City, cooking amongst greats like Jonathan Waxman at Barbudo, that you started kind of building your repertoire, your Italian-esque style. Right. Talk to me about how important food was prior to moving to New York. I mean, so growing up, like my mother always had, we always had a garden in our backyard and peach trees and plum trees. And my grandfather had Meyer lemon trees and grapefruit trees. So I would say that, you know, we always had the opportunity to have like stuff fresh off the vine um, and like sun kissed. So, I mean, I would say that fine cooking, which I came into like later in life, um, wasn't necessarily what we ate at the table, but we always ate super fresh, really balanced meals growing up. When I first moved to New York City, it was a very French city, um, and it wasn't really until I met Waxman that I kind of like found my core and like what really made me tick. Yeah. So, I mean, what is French? What is French cuisine to you? I mean, I don't think I knew fr- French cooking until I went to France, and like it's it's as diverse as any other country. Um, and I think that what most of us came to understand was like the very fancy haute cuisine French food that like was kind of born in Paris and Lyon. 
um, in Nouvelle Cuisine. And that was definitely my first experience and first exposure to it. You know, Waxman was a really interesting character because he'd spent time learning to cook in France um, with a lot of these French grades, but he has this kind of like Italian grandmother kind of feel. Yeah. Um, so it was really a hybrid. Like, you know, I spent almost a decade of my life with him at Washington Park. It was more French, but we touched upon a lot of the new American stuff that he had done and, you know, some very old French classics like Berblanc was always the stalwart. Yeah. <laughs> I made a lot of Berblanc in my life. Um, but like what struck me there is like we were doing eat, like French and Italian and Spanish kind of like home style cooking, like without a lot of mechanism, you know, everything was made in a mortar and pestle. Um, we didn't really have blenders or robocous, you know, it was a lot of smashing and grinding and pressing. Um, and for me, like coming out of this world where like we were like Brunwine garlic, um, to see people like take a rasp or a microplane or just like smash it or break it was like really like a revelation. And, you know, it's kind of informed who I've been the last 10, 12 years. And that's kind of like what started slow fires. Yeah. You know, you think of that as against the grain or breaking convention, but it, it really isn't. I mean, you get, we're getting back to the core of cooking uh, by being in that kind of kitchen. And what Slow Fires really does, too, is touch on those three very simple things, braising, roasting, and grilling. Um, how did your food get to the fire? I mean, it, it seems like a lot of French food is kind of, you know, these emulsifications, these mother sauces. But, you know, getting back to the core of cooking, to live fire cooking or, you know, long roasts and braises. Um, how did you get, you know, to that point in your life? Well, I mean, I think that, like, even if you look at, like, older French food or Italian food, like, a lot of, like, the matrons of the house would just come to the bread ovens as they were dying in the afternoon. So a lot of this food, before it became restaurant food, like, kind of started in that place. Um, and I think, like, you know, when I started working for Jonathan, I just found my home at the grill. And, like, yeah, I mean, I was good roasting, but, like, I like really heavy metal um, and I love the perfume of the grill and I like to be able to conduct and like move the element of heat around a lot. And like what, what this book, I guess, tries to aim at teaching you is how to control heat. You know, whether you're on a gas grill or a wood fired element or at a stove and it's trying to teach your senses how to respond to what the ingredients are doing, you know, and one of the things we talk about is, you know, a good friend of mine, Anthony Rose, who has a couple of places in Toronto now, once said to me, you should be able to visualize what it's going to look like on the other side. So anytime you put something on a grill or a plancha or a pan or an oven, like you should have that desired result kind of in your head already. Yeah. So slow, slow fires isn't slow and low, set it and forget it. I mean, you're actually attentive and reacting to what you're cooking. Right. So like within like the wood grilled section, we teach you how to build like a three stage fire and you might start off with like a really intense heat and kind of like getting that like initial Maillard and kind of setting that protein and building the crust. But like crust doesn't develop over high heat. So it's a series of movements until you get to that kind of dead zone that helps you build that bark. Cause yeah. like a lot of this food, whether it's like in the braising chapter, in the roasting chapter in the grilling chapter is about like juxtaposition of texture. And it is that kind of like dry, crusty denatured outside and this really supple giving kind of interior. How do you have the time for this? I mean, because approaching a book like this and you see the word slow, uh, there's the assumption that these are long processes, lengthy recipes. Are they? I mean, yes or no. I mean, the, the act of time daily is maybe no more than 15 minutes. But to get the complete meal, it might take you three days. Yeah. So like one day is brining and then the next day you, you remove from the brine and then you dry it. And then you go into the cooking process. Um, 
like the promise always is that we're going to help you yield a more delicious result. You know, so the investment that starts in like the curation of the ingredients, building your pantry and like working your way from like a Wednesday to a Saturday to get this meal um, is the goal. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, I, I am all for time, you know, spending as much time as possible to develop those flavors. I mean, the fermentation as everybody else is too. Um, but let's start with braising, which is the most forgiving uh, of all those kind of techniques, not just in time, but, you know, in texture and, you know, in flavor as well. Um, what is braising to you? How do you define that to somebody? I mean, so basically the way that we chose to look at braising and slow fire or the way I look at it in the restaurant is not necessarily just what I think in traditional French cooking we know as kind of this like season, then sear, then braise, and then out. So we played around with different vegetable techniques and we basically kind of landed on the Italian ideal braising, which is cooking in umido cooking with a lot of moisture and i think what makes some of these braises interesting is the amount of liquid that we have relative to the amount of protein um so it's not always this like rule of a third you know sometimes we're like wet we're, we're wet cooking and we're just basting constantly throughout um it's not necessarily like a submersion yeah i mean that's part of that altering ratios of moisture because exactly. you know uh, uh, some of these recipes too in this book kind of work backwards you know um right so it, it's not about like you said that that ratio of thirds it's not about those traditional methods you know you have this basis of braising and you kind of want to you know think outside of that you know cocote or whatever you're braising in exactly and then like once you get to the point on the other side with like with the pork shank you know so it is one of those like submersion traditional style braises but then we have you kind of base this like really chunky sofrito over like in the oven so that you're caramelizing all that vegetable uh, yeah. kind of like mass and you're like creating this bark and this like really kind of sticky, you know, like can't help but swab a piece of bread through the pan kind of dish. Yeah. Uh, you know, looking through the braising chapter too, you sometimes forget how important cooking liquid is. You know, we boil pasta and the debate for years was whether to salt it or oil it or just leave it alone. But there's so much flavor in, in that inherent liquid um, that anything is submerged in initially. Right. Um, let's talk about those liquids because I know your, your wife is Japanese yep. and dashi has found its way into your Italian ex kind of cooking. It has. I mean, like, so dashi was something that like I discovered like when we first got together and I went to Japan, but like dashi is just such a clean, flavorful liquid. And it's a liquid that you could really achieve pretty quickly. I mean, you can choose to steep the kombu overnight and then make your broth the next day, or you can really turn the whole thing around in like 30 minutes. So there's been a lot of times in my career where I might only have six burners and I'm feeding 500 people a day, or I have to feed this many people at my home. And like dashi is something I can turn around in 30 minutes and like start the braise rather than like blanch the chicken bones, bring it up, shock them, you know, and, and spend two and a half hours. So I just love the maximum impact. And there's like this inherent salinity. Sorry for the use of the word umami. Yeah. Um, that I just find really fascinating. And like with a lot of the meats, because we're brining or salting before, like the liquid doesn't need to be as highly seasoned. As highly seasoned, Because there's going to be this kind of like osmotic transfer that happens during the whole process. Yeah. And like you said, after that, usually there's a sofrito or a mirepoix. Right. You know, you get off that fond. There are steps to this thing. You know, braising isn't, again, a kind of said and forget it thing. You know, you do have to be attentive, attentive but not, you know, punctual per se. Exactly. I mean, you have to be present in the process. And I think that, like, with grilling, it's pretty obvious. Like, with stovetop roasting, it's always obvious. And I think that with braising, a lot of times, I mean, there is, like, the, 
like the busy mother that's running around taking kids to soccer practices or whatever it is, and it's just kind of easy to put this thing in the oven. But like really good braising and super attentive braising, I think happens when you're present in the process. And it's present like once you sear the meat and you make sure that you achieve, again, that golden brown. You've spent time brining, you've spent time drying, and then you're washing the pan with the sofrito and you're picking up all that additional fond. And then you're making sure when you add your initial liquid, whether it's a vinegar or some kind of wine or other ferment, that you're reducing it down on top and like really kind of like at each step of the braise, getting as much flavor as you can. You know, uh, sugo or kind of, you know, that Sunday suppers, you know, sauce that goes over everything from pasta to, to a braised meat. Um, it's something you kind of always want to have in your kitchen. What is your go-to sugo? It depends on the time of year. It depends on like what we're cooking at that moment. Um, like right now in the fall, we're dealing with a lot of ducks and we're dealing with a lot of pigs. So different parts from either of those animals might appear in different sugos. But creating that flavored broth before you create the sugo is the most important thing yeah. for me. But I think that's a great introduction. You know, you can do your oxtails, which which you have in this book and which I love. And we'll talk about why it's so hard to find oxtail. I don't know. You know, I guess we're lucky being in New York and maybe it's a coastal thing. But you, you travel around this country and people aren't as ready to, you know, make an asobuco. Which is it's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of nuts. I mean, I think that there's nothing more delicious or unctuous or telling of like really classic braising than something like an oxtail. Yeah. Um, it's just so giving, you know, and it's so satisfying pulling that meat from the bone um, and just smacking your lips and like swabbing bread. You know, so for a lot of like the braising recipes too, like in the complete meals, we try to keep some of the other ingredients raw. So this comes with just like a very like lightly kind of bruised cabbage salad. And you can either like roll it up, the meat up in that kind of thing, or just kind of create, or just have a lot of fun with the meals. Like we didn't want to become too dictatory. No, I mean, I, I don't mind following your dogmatic way of cooking because, I mean, aside from being gorgeous on the page, they just read so well too. Um, they kind of fold out in this way where, you know, you do have your main, you have your protein, and that's wonderfully done. But then the, the accoutrements just... They pop. I mean, there's so much brightness and, you know, levity to them that, that you don't necessarily always find in a braise. I mean, what I also found fascinating, too, is you overlook uh, um, the idea of confit as a braise sometimes. Right. You know, duck life confit, uh, cassoulet. I mean, that's all braising. Right. I mean, braising is something that happens, like, of the moment, like, either over the dying embers of an oven or, like, it was a preservation technique. Um and it was something that you could kind of cap off and keep for another couple of days. Like if you're in the process of like living at a farm and you, you process the animal and like you're harvesting all this meat, let's like, how do you do every part of it? You know, and maybe some goes into charcuterie or some goes into fresh salumi and then some goes into these braising or you're grilling the chops over a live fire when you're going. But, you know, we didn't want to make this a whole animal nose to tail kind of book, but we try to use the same intelligences that are found in those traditional cooking methods. Well, tell me about the Sicilian kale stuffed turkey leg. Being that Thanksgiving is coming up, people always look for an alternative. You know, I feel like last year was the year of spatchcocking. So hopefully this year is the year of a stuffed turkey leg. I mean, in the world of poultry, there's nothing better than the leg. Like the leg and the thigh is my jam. And we wanted to figure out a way to do like a turkey dish that we all could be proud of and all feel comfortable with. Um, so I mean, like boning it out, 
rolling it up with all these kind of like really flavorful kind of gnarly bits of panade. You know, the time we spend making the breadcrumb that's going to stuff. Because I think, again, like it's a lot of these traditional steps, like even just like staling the bread for the crumb before or pre-salting the kale before you chop it up. It just makes such a, a, a bigger impact and it leaves it fresher and sharper. Yeah. I, I just wanted to roll up a piece of meat before we actually talk about you know, your infamous porchetta in a little bit. But we're going to take a quick break and then come back, talk about roasting, especially touching and jostling. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Cider Week helps to bring profitability to local orchards while reviving heirloom apple varieties by cultivating awareness of craft cider. Cider Week connects cider makers from New York State and select pioneering guest cideries outside the state to buyers from top restaurants, bars, and retail shops across New York City. Those culinary tastemakers, in turn, help increase consumer awareness of cider's pleasures by hosting public events, tastings, dinners, classes, and pairings that build appreciation and demand for regional ciders. And welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Justin Smiley of Slow Fires, uh, chef at Upland Restaurant, too, which I want to mention because, obviously, if you don't feel like cooking from this book, you can stop by and just have Justin do it for you. Um, and I've been in. It's, it's amazing. And I won't tell everybody to get, you know, those peppercorn-crusted short ribs. Right. You know, I think you've done that enough. I mean, about a thousand pounds a week for three and a half years of my life. Yeah, yeah. Are you tired of them, or, or are they still kind of a wonder to you? No, they're still kind of a wonder. I mean, and it was this dish that we kind of, like we talk about it in the book, but kind of happened as a happy accident. And we knew that we wanted to do some kind of like a churrasco-y kind of short rib. We tried cooking it on the, on the rotisserie at Alamotari, and it would take like literally nine and a half, ten hours, and the meat would shrink. And you'd hear during service like this like loud clunk um, on the bottom of the rotisserie tray. And they're like, okay, we got to change form a little bit. And yeah. like, the peppercorns are coming off. So then we started steam roasting them. And, you know, we didn't really have a fancy combi oven at that point. You know, we were just kind of hotel pan, little rag, foil, and then, you know, humid the whole way. Um, and then we played around with the brine time, the time of pave, so like that kind of sets that crust, and then like how long they should sit after under the press to kind of yield this like crazy kind of pastrami, churrasco, au poivre, just like hallmark of beefiness. Yeah. Um, and it's still amazing. Like I've watched 110 pound women polish off an entire board by themselves. Um, and big dudes. I mean, it's it's a great dish. Yeah, and again, that was one of those that you kind of reversed the process. Um, yeah. You know, usually you're not doing like a hot pan to set the crust afterwards. It's usually the hard sear first, right. and then put it into some kind of steam or or even braise at that point. But um, let's let's get back to roasting because touch, touching and jostling. I love that you use these two terms because again, it's one of those things. You want to know how to react to your food, and the best way to do that is to feel it. Right. So what should food feel like? Talk to me about maybe even just the panless duck. 
I mean, again, it goes back to kind of knowing what your desired end result is and like what you're dealing with at that time. Um, like learning to follow the cues like to, that are going to get you towards that goal, I think is a very unforgotten skill or it's a very forgotten skill. You know, you have to like, I always tell everybody don't touch it until you see either that crust kind of peaking up or like, you know, the beginning of an amber eclipsing the side of the meat, like whatever it would be. Um, like if you shake it a little bit, like that's that jostling, like it'll kind of like shake free. It's kind of just knowing like after cooking these things a couple times, <coughs> you know, it's, it's increasingly important from the first time you cook it to the 10th time you cook it to pay attention to how you got to that place. I mean, does it drive you wild when people are like, Oh, well it always gets stuck to the pan or stuck to the grill. I mean, you want it to. Yeah. Yeah. But it's usually also, uh, um, when someone doesn't, you know, leave it alone enough. Right. I mean, good cooking takes time. Um, and good cooking is often a little troublesome. You know, to get it to the place of where you want it to be super delicious. And, like, again, I just think, like, touching and jostling and not being scared to touch the food or experience the process is, like, what holds people, like, back. Like, in the beginning, we want you to follow the brine percentages and we want you to pay attention. But, I mean, good cooking to me is really about kind of, like, developing preference. And, like, what you prefer is what you learn through the multiple times of cooking these things. What is your preference for apples? In this book, uh, and pears, you know, you sage roast them. Um, it's one of those, I'm going back to Thanksgiving because I'm trying to set up that menu in my head right now. Right. And I might just cook out of this book. Thank you for that. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not a protein. And a lot of this book is about meat. But what about these sides? What about these, you know, orchard fruits? I mean, you're, you're caramelizing sugars, which is essentially like what you're doing in a meat. And, you know... I think that roasting a pear can present as many challenges as like roasting a piece of filet or a strip because you still want to maximize caramelization, right? And you still want to make sure that you're getting this kind of like, depending on the pear, but this kind of gushy, sweet, giving texture on the inside. And it's not just a hard roast and like, forget it. You know, like with anything that you're going to put in a pan, you got to pay attention the whole way through. And like with a carrot, like you're feeling it, like, is that soft enough for me? And like, what's soft enough for me might, might not be soft enough for you. And again, it goes back to that preference. But like touching and jostling is what's going to help get you there. That real porchetta? How often do you touch and jostle that thing? I mean, at one point we were cooking eight pigs worth of porchetta a week at Alimentari. And now we probably cook 10 pigs a week at Upland. Um, and we've cooked it every number of ways. We've cooked it in a hearth over live fire, over gas fire. We've deep fried it before roasting it. We've based it with hot fat. Um, you know, and again, it, I think it depends on the size of the animal. But the thing to remember is, you know, that paste that you put on the inside of that muscle, that's the only chance you get, right, to season it all the way through. Because once you cinch it up, it's done. And letting that salt or know how long it's going to take for that salt to penetrate the muscle all the way so that every bite is super delicious, you know, it takes a little experience, you know, and takes you paying attention. Um, the My biggest pet peeve with porchetta is that people will get a crackling skin and then they'll cook the loin like mid-rare. And for me, like really good porchetta cooking is about getting that belly super rendered out. And that depends on the size of the animal that you're cooking, obviously. But it's kind of basting 
that like what would be a very dry piece all the way through, but it makes it like really supple because there's nothing worse than getting that crackling, crunchy fat, <laughs> and then undercooked loin. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, again, it's kind of counterintuitive because people are always thinking roast like beautiful rosy in the middle, and like often with porchetta, it's maybe a little like dying rose or like a little early gray, um, light creamy tan. Um, I mean, for me, that's porchetta. Yeah. For me, your porchetta is porchetta. You know, it's it's a, it's a great definition of what it should be and what it should only be. Because once you've had that, you can't really go around having porchetta in other places. And you'll have a lot of versions yeah. of it, right? Yeah. Uh, grilling, I want to talk about how to build a fire. Um, I know this book is written for charcoal, you know, mm-hmm. wood. Um, but you can also do it with gas. But Absolutely. Preference is still the prior, right? Preference is always the prior. That's the way I grew up eating. It's the way I have the most fun cooking. And, you know, I don't know, for those of you who've been to Barbudo, that large black beast in the corner is probably one of the most fun grills to cook in New York City, um, especially when it was live fire. But again, like the thing with grilling is just remembering that, you know, you need different stages of the fire and you're not necessarily dealing with a stovetop. You know, you need to find a different way to control the heat, and that's why you build the stage fires. So typically, we we build a large bed, whether it's either charcoal or wood, and then we let it kind of die. You know, and building a fire is it's becoming more and more popular cooking with again, but it takes time. You know, like for us to cook anything, it probably takes me an hour to get that fire ready to the to the point of where I want to start cooking over it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people get gas grills for that reason because they want to be able to fire it up. But again, there's nothing like being able to build that fire, uh, you know, get it to where you want it and putting a beautiful Bisteca Florentina on there and just letting it chill. Right. And then like being able, I mean, like the great thing about charcoal or like wood fire, like once you build it to coals, is that you can cook in a couple different places. Like you can leave a grate open and you can be like coal roasting potatoes or egg ran- eggplants around the coal. So you can really build this complete meal. And that's one of the things that we try to do in the grilling chapter is get people to the place where they understood that you don't need to build this in your kitchen upstairs and then go to the backyard and have everything else. You can have this bounty at the table and just be building the entire meal out of the grill. I want to talk about a story, a situation of Hurricane Sandy. Because um, I used to love going to El Buco's Pig Roast. Mm. I mean, that is, I think, one of the most epic cooking events in New York. It is. Uh, you know, you close off, is that Bond Street right there? Yeah. And that whole cobbled street is is turned into a large fire, in a sense. Yeah. Um, tell me about that annual tradition, but also tell me about um, what it felt like to be part of Hurricane Sandy in that community. Pretty wild. Um, so Donna Leonard is really good friends with Francis Malman. So Francis had built us an Infernio. So we had this in our storage unit. And that becomes the question or begs the question, like, what do you do with all this meat? <laughs> you know, any below anything below 33rd Street had no power, which means people had no access to food. Um, so it just started from this place like we wanted to feed the neighborhood and, you know, get rid of the stuff that we had in the box. Um, and like, what, what, what better way to share community than gathering around a live fire? Um, so we built this Infernio, which we had a grill on top and then this little oven in the middle. And it was like windy and still rainy and still kind of gross outside. I mean, it's amazing within 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 25 minutes, like the line around the block. Um, and it's everything from neighbors to fellow restaurateurs to students wandering over from the NYU campus because we share 4th Street. Um, you know, and 
in the the missions right on the Bowery right there. So it was really an interesting cross section of like lower New York City. And we just got to share with everybody. And it was the fresh sausages that we had and we're roasting chickens and we're cooking off porchettas. And we did it for three days until we were gone. And we bounced back and forth between Obuco Bond Street and Obuco Alimentari. It's probably the only time you can really build live fire in New York City and not have the NYPD or uh, the, the fire department mad at you. Yeah. And did it just already happen this year? What's that? Did it happen already this it year? It happened this year, yeah. Yeah. What, when should people expect it next year? Usually middle of September. Okay. Put that down because not only do you get those three techniques, braising, roasting, grilling, but again, like you said, the community that comes and uh, the smells that emanate. I mean, that's one thing I have to say about this book. I wish it was Scratch and Sniff because it, is, sure. one, it is one of those books next that time. you kind of <laughs> see and, and you want to smell everything too within process you know the finished dishes they're such vibrant looking dishes but uh the flavor and and aroma are certainly there in in you know the steps and techniques and and descriptions it's it's quite lovely i mean food should be craveable you know and the food that we did at alimentari the food that we do at upland to this day and the food that i cook for my kids at home and my wife it's like i always want to be craveable and i want you to remember that and i want you to come back for that so I mean, I didn't want this to feel like super chefy recipes. I wanted you to develop like a vocabulary and a language with technique and understand the cues that we work with. And then hopefully at the end of your investment in time and your financial investment, you end up with a really lovely meal on either Saturday or Sunday night. I have no doubt. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Justin, for being on. Thanks for having me. Go out right now, get slow fires and start cooking with fire. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.